And I had a saying, and he was, I said, mediocrity does not belong in this room. We don't do mediocrity. Welcome to Musicians vs. the World, the podcast where we explore aspects of music and musician life that may not have been covered in music school. I am your host, Christine Smith. Today, I am sharing the second part of my conversation with William C. Davis, musician, conductor, and retired choral educator. In our last episode, we learned a bit about Bill's background and how he worked with school administration to create incredible opportunities for his choral students. One of those opportunities took his choir to the beaches of Normandy and created an opportunity for healing and learning. You seize these kind of opportunities to teach the kids something besides, you know, we teach them the music and, and they're going to do it really well. But there are other things to be taught, too. And you get, you get those chances. And they don't happen very often, but they do happen once in a while. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, please take some time and listen to it when you're finished with this one. In today's part two, we take a minute to talk about expectations, how to set them, and how to get students to reach them. We also learn how to keep our lives and music making in perspective, and Bill gives his advice to new musicians, no matter where their music career is taking them. And with that introduction, please enjoy part two of my conversation with conductor William C. Davis. What did you do as a teacher to get the best performance out of your students? Did you have any little tricks or any little things that you did? I wouldn't call them tricks. I always made sure that I, I, I chose quality music to perform. Mm -hmm. And that didn't mean it had to be classical music, though a lot of it was. But it would be quality music, quality arrangements, and then we would perform it to the best of our ability. And I insisted on that, you know, no, no nonsense. We, we had fun in rehearsals and we'd laugh at each other and they'd laugh at me because I'm not perfect. And every once in a while, you know, I'd do, I said, ah, oh, gee, and that would always generate some comments. But to just really do things well, you know, not. Not mediocre. I had a saying, and yes, I said, mediocrity does not belong in this room. We don't do mediocre here. I said, and I hope you understand that. Yeah. So you set those expectations for them. I have to say they were pretty high, but that's okay. Mm -hmm. They rose to the occasion, and oh, I had such wonderful kids, wonderful students, and we were able to do really um, remarkable things. You know, I do a Mendelssohn piece in eight-part harmony. Mm. Uh, acapella. Wow. Uh, we would do stuff with instruments. I love musical theater. And one of my favorite, it's hard for me to say a favorite because as soon as I say that, I can think of three other things over here that, yes, that's my favorite too. And then, <laughs> so so let's, let's not do the favorite thing. But one thing I really had a wonderful time doing was some music from musical theater. And I have to say, uh, fell in love with the musical Godspell. Uh, mm. I hope you're familiar with it. Mm -hmm. And saw it several times. Uh, saw it twice in New York City and a couple times in other theaters. All done wonderfully well. And loved the message and loved the, the music. And there existed an arrangement of the music from Godspell. And I took it and then I said, you know, there's too much missing from this arrangement. And so I bought the full score and took out the pieces that were missing 
and wrote my own arrangements and put them into what already existed. And what was about a 12-minute arrangement turned into almost a half an hour because oh. of what I kept putting in there. But I was, but I, I always was smart enough to choose to do it when I had the student musicians who could play. Mm-hmm. It, it needs a drummer. It needs a guitarist. It needs a bass guitarist. Kids who can play acoustic guitars. Some kids that there's a part for a recorder, uh, and so on. And I always made sure I had those. They're all out there, and we, and we had the best time. And uh, I remember we sang it. One of these exchanges we did it with a high school in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and we did that. And I brought all the instruments with me. We brought the whole thing, and we put it on. And I, I have to say that particular night in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, although I wish we'd done that as well in Naugatuck, we did the best job ever. It was one of those perfect musical moments that happens every once in a while, luckily, mm-hmm. and it, we nailed it there. And the kids, the Portsmouth High School kids, the New Hampshire kids, they couldn't get over it. And they could, how do you do that? How do you get your director to do that? I don't under, you know, and they'd go on like that. But it was just, if the music is really quality stuff or is a quality arrangement, the music will speak to the student, the singer, the performer. It just, it just does. If it's really good stuff, it'll do what it's supposed to. Mm-hmm. It'll grab you emotionally, spiritually, musically, whatever. It does. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think having a very good director and conductor helps with that too. Well, we try. I always made sure I did my homework and prepping stuff, not only with them, but prepping myself, looking at if I had this, how could I make it better? How could I tweak it a little better? Is there something that maybe I could change a little bit that would help them do it better? And I always, always did that. And it was that was the music theory coming out of me that I love to do arranging. So I could sit at the piano and I would start to, how about if I did this instead of, you know, oh, I like that and so on. And it worked. It worked. And it's fun to do that, especially when it does work. Yeah. And I know that all of those hundreds of students and parents of those students have benefited from your expertise and from your kindness and from your enthusiasm. Well, I got to say that the students were very supportive of the task put in front of them and their parents. They help make things happen, including raising money. That That's that elephant in the room that nobody likes to talk about. Uh-huh. That, uh, that happens. Even after you retired, you did not stop with music. Like you still do these concert series in your town now, and you are now conducting a men's choir. How is that different from teaching? Well, arranging the concert series, I just, I'm kind of like the empresario. I just coordinate the stuff and let them come and do their wonderful job. We had our last, our sixth and last one for the season last night. Mm -hmm. In terms of the men's group that I direct right now, which is completely different from uh, the students I had, they are ages 35 to 80, and yet they're all very good singers. Mm-hmm. Um, the guy who's 80 years old, he says, I'll never stop. And I've had him as old as about 86. Wow. Sing, and they actually still sing very well. Hats off to them. So in terms of the older group, it's called the Barnstormers, the, the men's group, I sometimes can't push them as hard as I do the students. I always have to check myself with 
things I want to get done in a rehearsal. You know, okay, let's do this. Now let's do it again. Okay, okay, now I want to do this here. And an hour and a half later, I'm getting a high sign from one of the singers. It says, you know, time to back it off, Bill. <laughs> and where the kids, my students, you know, they they wanted to get it right too. And so they were very willing to go the extra mile. Mm-hmm. Uh, but other than that, you know, cutoffs are cutoffs and singing in tune is singing in tune and diction is diction. And it doesn't matter whether you're 80 or 18. That needs to be good. So that doesn't change. What sort of advice do you have for anybody wanting to be a musician or a music educator like yourself? What sort of advice would you give someone like that? Get as much training as you can. And when your professor is is laying it on you, don't worry about it. There's a reason. And, And really get as much training, as much experience as you possibly can, not only as, as a performer, but organizationally, uh, some people seem to forget <laughs> how important that is. Being true to yourself in terms of this is what you really want to do. Don't go into music as a profession if you don't want to work really hard. If you want an e- easier job, then you better do something else. Because I'll give you an analogy. I coached tennis at Naugatuck High School for a lot of years. And during the first years I did it, got paid $300 for an entire season. I made the mistake of sitting down one day and figuring out, took out all the hours I did with practice and and games, matches, and so on. Came out to $1.22 an hour. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I gotta tell you that the same thing would happen if you're in the music business. If you're tired, and you really don't want to spend another hour organizing that, but it really needs to be done by tomorrow. You can't say, I'm too tired. You've got to say, okay, I'll just, I got to get that done. Yeah. And then that's what you do. I have never been disappointed in the extra time, effort, training that I have spent in preparing what I'm going to do musically, whether it's as a teacher or as a conductor or making arrangements of things. It's because I wanted, that's what I wanted to do. So here we go. (laughs) And off we go. And off we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) If I, is there time to tell two stories? Yeah, tell me two stories. I would love it. Okay. I always work real hard for the kids. You know, you got to be careful that they don't get a big head because Uh they're singing in this wonderful place or, you know, and, and they get standing ovation from 600 people because of, I always used to tell them it really matters every time you perform and you always do your best regardless of who's out there going to listen. You know, one of, one of the European trips you mentioned, we were in Germany. We were, we were heading home. We were in Berlin. And we had sung in some, a couple concerts hall and had an audience of 800 people that loved what we did. And we were heading toward the airport, and we were ahead of schedule, which rarely happens. <laughs> and our guide, who traveled with us, says, do you have a few minutes? 
says, there's a place that I'd like you to stop. And we stopped at a Russian Orthodox church. Now, this is after the breakdown of the Soviet Union. This was in the 90s we were there. And I said, I'd like to bring you in here. And we we had a, oh, about 40 kids. And we go into this, not a big church, but it was round. Mm. And we walked in and we met a couple of the priests and a couple nuns. And they showed us around the church and, and a lot of the Russian icons that they have in Russian Orthodox sanctuaries. And you could tell that not a whole lot of people come to the Russian Orthodox Church after the fall, after Glasnost. And I came to and I said, can we sing a song for you? And so I had the kids line up mm -hmm. and they started literally around the edge, the perimeter of this church, which was in the round. Mm. We had this piece by Mendelssohn called Heilig, which is holy. And, and it's Heilig, 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 or Holy, Holy, Holy. And it starts, it's in eight parts. And it starts with the first soprano, second soprano, first alto, second tenor, same thing, first bass, second. And it starts with Heilig, 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 Heilig. And it builds a chord starting with the first sopranos. Mm. And it starts with a, and each, the first heads the first, seconds get the next note, altos, and the altos get the next, and so on. And it builds all the way around to the low bass at the end. And it builds and builds and builds. And it built into this magnificent, magnificent chord. Sang a beautiful job, kids. And we finished. And I turned around and said, There you go. And the priest and the nuns were crying. And that's what that's what makes it important. That's what I try to teach the students. That's what that's what it's about. We also locally at Christmas time. We go out and sing everywhere. And we usually end up doing about nine concerts, some very short and small and others big ones. And there's this nursing home in town in Nogata called Glendale. And we go there every year. And we go down and we only do 20 minutes, 25 minutes program for them. And they had this kind of general room and they would bring in the residents in wheelchairs, walkers, and then they brought in two people on a gurneys, basically wheeled them in on their beds. And we introduced ourselves and we sang for them. And I told the kids, says, when we're done, we're not going to run out the door. I want you to go out there and talk with them. Wish them a Merry Christmas. Hold their hand. Just do something like that. And we sang some upbeat numbers toward the end. And then we sang a couple of carols, et cetera. I would ask them to sing with us, although a couple of them actually sang rather well, but they were all trying. And it all of a sudden it caught me that this elderly, elderly lady lying on a gurney right six feet from me. You couldn't tell. I was, I had literally, when I noticed her before, wonder if she's even listening. And we were singing and these carols and her hand was up on the rail and the finger was going in tempo to the music. Hmm. And so she was there. And I pointed that out to my kids after. I said, 
That's why. Yeah. That's why we do it. So there you go. That's why I do what I do. Well, thank you for doing what you do. Those are beautiful stories. Well, thank you. I think that's a beautiful place to end this. That's why we do what we do. So thank you. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for talking with me and, and sharing all it has, it has been my pleasure. Oh, pleasure's been all mine. Thank you for joining me in my conversation with musician, conductor, and retired choral educator, William C. Davis. If you've enjoyed our interview, go ahead and look up local concerts in your area. And be sure to support other musicians wherever they are in their career. As you've heard in today's conversation, incredible musical experiences can happen in even the smallest of concerts. Also, please share this episode with anyone that you think may enjoy it or may learn something from it. Musicians vs. the World is a production of Frosted Lens Entertainment in conjunction with Smith Sound Music. It is hosted and edited by me, Christine Smith, and our producer today is Russ Wilkes. A very special thank you to William C. Davis for joining me and sharing his experiences and insights into the world of music education. In today's episode, you've heard excerpts of Heilig by Felix Mendelssohn, Exultate Giusti un Domino by Ludovico da Viadana, and So Ben Mi Cia Bon Tempo by Orazio Vecchi. These pieces were performed by the Nagatuck High School Chamber Singers and led by William C. Davis. Join us next time where we'll be switching gears and we'll be talking with Dr. Brandon Bascom about competition in the world of classical music. Is it a necessary evil? Is it a way to open doors to new opportunities? Or does competition really have no place in the arts? If you have enjoyed today's podcast, please be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss out on any future conversations. If you have any questions for us, topics you'd like to hear about, or any helpful advice for other musicians that you'd like to share, be sure to reach out on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, or send us an email at info at Thanks so much for listening, and have a great day.